Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. My name is Nate Antetomaso, as always, joined by Evan Knowles. We have a great conversation for you guys today. We sat down and talked to Dan Beldy. He is founding partner at Airwing Ventures, a new venture fund that he's starting up in the Lexington area. He was an early investor at Fuji. Uh, before that, he worked at Steamboat Ventures, which is Disney's investment arm. He has a lot of experience across the industry. We talk about his whole past, how he got to where he is today, and the opportunity that he sees in Lexington. It is an amazing conversation. You won't want to miss it. Let's do it. All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. As always, my name is Nate Antetomaso. I am up in Chicago, Illinois. Down south, we got Evan Knowles. How you doing, man? Doing well. We had a good time this weekend, didn't we? Yeah, I just got back uh, last night from Lexington, homecoming weekend. Uh, spent way too much money going to the races, going to the football game and everything. Um, Did you guys go to Keeneland? Yeah, I, I went to Keeneland twice. Um, I my grandma bought nice tickets on Thursday. So I got to, <laughs> to live the fancy life. And then uh, I went in the, the old college route, $5 general admission on Friday. Nice. So fun. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a bit, what felt like a cold tornado on Saturday at the game. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. We ended up leaving at halftime. Is that right? Yeah. We were up on the top. Uh, it was way too cold. We were kind of a boring game, slow game. So it, we was, just ended up leaving. it was like, just there's only one touchdown in the first half, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was seven, seven. Yeah, it was seven to seven at the half. But oh, yeah. seven, seven. Wildcats yeah. pulled it out. They did. Yeah, it was a boring game. <laughs> well, it's boring. UK's, game. Yeah, UK's yeah. just running the ball a lot, which is you know, Benny smells cool. Really fun to watch, but by the time it can lead to boring. By the time this comes out, the Missouri game will have already happened. I'm scared about that game, though. Yeah, you think you think there uh, might be a letdown for that game? It could be a trap game because we can't throw. <laughs> I just want to go on the Georgia game, uh, you know, six and one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That would, for the championship. That's going to be a huge game. And yeah. I, I don't know the – when's the last time Kentucky's been ranked this high in football? 19 – I don't know. 1976, I thought. I saw some stat was the last time we played for the SEC East. Is that right? No. No, no, you're right. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, we right. we've been so historically bad. Like it's yeah, just crazy, it's crazy. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. Well, so, well, let's officially introduce our guest. Uh, you guys have already heard his voice there. That is the voice of Dan Beldy, the founding partner at Airwing Ventures. Thanks for joining us today, man. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me in the world headquarters of Fuji. Happy to happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, you guys uh, record in the conference room down there. Yeah, we're in the big hard eyes conference room. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, that's actually how uh, Dan and I met. So yeah, go I mean, he was involved in Fuji, and um, obviously I was involved in Fuji from early on, and we met it out in LA. Oh, in LA, uh, yeah. got some dinner, and I, I really enjoyed listening to his experience and everything he's been through. He's moved all over the United States, been to some awesome cities, was in the Navy, uh, so he's got a really cool background. Uh, but now he's you know here in Lexington, doing amazing things, and so. I think it's just fitting to get him on the podcast and hear, uh, you know, from his experience and what he's hoping to achieve, uh, you know, in this region. So, again, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. 
Yeah. When you when you guys met, were you in LA full time, Dan, or were you splitting time between Kentucky and LA at that point? I was splitting time. We still have a place in LA, and I spent a lot of time in LA. We, family and I, have been in California for twenty plus years, Mm -hmm. and. Yeah, a few years back, my wife started visiting the area, fell in love with it. And so I started visiting uh, more often and started giving my background adventure, looking at some of the tech ecosystem partners that are around here, especially in Lexington, Awesome Inc. folks. And I think I've met uh, a good number of folks that you've had on this podcast over the last few months. So excited, excited to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things I'm seeing here and then through that due diligence on my part in the region uh, found Fuji, thought Fuji was doing something really interesting. Disney, who we'll talk about a little, uh, who I worked for in the past, was the largest customer at Fuji. So it was uh, a lot of uh, nice sort of connections. And then sure enough, Evan and I were hanging out in LA uh, talking about Lexington. Yeah, no, it was fun. <laughs> it was good to do that because I was, I had been out in LA for a while at that point. So it was just good to sit there and, you know, talk to somebody about Lexington because I had always, you know, it's just always about Fuji or, or LA and, you know, I had missed uh, Lexington a little bit. So it was good to just sit there and, you know, chat about Lexington. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But let's, uh, let's get into it. Dan, so tell us about um, kind of where you grew up and, you know, where you came from. I just lost my earpiece in the middle of the first question. <laughs> so... I grew up in New York, Long Island, New York, and the whole family's back in New York, New Jersey, and uh, spent the first 17 years of my life there. In fact, went to public schools, uh, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but always thought I was going to stay in New York the, the rest of my life. And sure enough, from the time I went to college, I, I still love New York, go back and visit my family, but I've probably lived everywhere else but New York. Uh, since got it what uh what was your favorite part of new york i think I, who who doesn't love new york city right yeah. i mean i love to yeah. visit i probably couldn't live there my sisters have lived in the city uh black friends that live and work in the city i'm, I'm a big fan you know my favorite my favorite baseball team of course the new york mets okay so so still a big fan of of new york and everything about it and, and go back to visit a lot and i think my experiences there and experiences in the Navy and, and certainly seeing different parts of the country will tie back to some of the conversation we have about being here and how much I love the country and all the different parts of the country. So I try and use that background and, and upbringing and, uh, and share that experience with everyone, you know, I come yeah. across. Got it. Very cool. Uh, so did you go straight into the Navy, you know, after high school or did you go to college for a while? What was that decision like to go in the Navy? So my decision, well, the decision to go to, I went to the United States Naval Academy. So by, by definition, when you go to a service academy, you're agreeing to serve your country. And so my decision to go to college was a little different. I mentioned earlier, went to public high school, had a high school guidance counselor that was very supportive of the, his, his thesis was if you were pretty good at a lot of things, but you're not great at anything. You should think about doing a ROTC scholarship or going through a service academy, serve your country, save your parents some money. And so I think all that factored into <laughs> my decision. I'd actually 
gotten into some good schools like MIT and Penn and Cornell. I actually had my roommate at the University of Pennsylvania on a Navy ROTC scholarship, and I went down to Annapolis and uh, spent some time with the baseball team. And the coach, there's no scholarships at service academies, but the coach at the Naval Academy said I could try out for the team. And I think at the time I was 17 or 16, thought I was going to be the Roger Staubach of uh, <laughs> baseball and, and go into the pros. And I think, you know, if everybody looks back on their decisions at that point. That was, yeah, I did want to serve my country and I, I did, you know, want to test myself. So I think that all factored in and went to the Naval Academy, spent four great years there. Uh, and ended up going from that to flight school and flew yeah. jets for eight years. So um, a couple of big decisions there shaped uh, my career, I think, going forward. One was uh, studying computer science. So I'd taken a computer science class in high school. I'm dating myself, but I, I graduated high school in 1982. It just started offering computer science classes. Yeah, I was going to say that had to be very early, early when schools offered that. Just started. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so did a little programming with the basic in high school and really liked it. So uh, I love math and science. I love all subjects, but, but certainly took a liking to math and science. Uh, had done, you know, like a lot of people, a lot of uh, entrepreneurial jobs, paper route, lawnmower, lawnmower business growing up. So, so good work ethic and, and good uh, study habits, I guess. And, and when I got to the Naval Academy, they offered computer science as a major for the first time. So I think this will be a recurring theme in the conversation, but I always, you know, I, I've always loved business and I've always loved sort of the future, consider myself probably spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Yeah. And uh, when that was offered, there were probably two, two schools of thought. Some were saying, well, they still don't know what they're going to include in that curriculum and it's just starting you don't want to take you know you don't want to study computer science because they're just trying to figure that out the other part of me was hey i think this is i think this is going to be a big thing maybe yeah. i should study it yeah and so so i did and graduated in 86 with a, a bs in computer science flew jets for eight years and that was great had a, had a wonderful time uh, my analogy coming back to business was uh, you know, F-18 is, is like a big flying computer, right? And, and it was uh, it, it a great test of, of you as an individual on, on a, a number of fronts, landing on a carrier day and night, uh, working with your uh, squadron mates and teams and doing missions and, uh, and planning. So a lot of discipline, a lot of risk management, right? You yeah, uh, sure. want to make sure you land and, and live and fight another day kind of thing. So uh, all of that, and I'll, I'll tie it into, because we'll, we'll get into venture and, and some of the more recent uh, endeavors and, and meeting all of you. Uh, so I made a decision after eight years, I got married young, had kids young, that uh, I wanted to go back into the workforce and go back into business. At the time, I thought I'd been out so uh, for eight years, or at least out of the workforce, uh, traditional civilian workforce. And technology had changed so much from 1986 to 1994. Uh, uh, all of this sort of, uh, I had a, a job offer, a couple of job offers that they presented to uh, naval officers or anybody getting out of the service at that time. And I think 
did interviews with some big companies like Pepsi and, and Yum Brands is not far from here in Louisville. And I was offered a uh, plant manager job of a Doritos plant in Smyrna, Georgia. That was one offer. I had a couple other job offers. And then um, a good friend uh, was starting a technology consulting firm, working with small community banks. So it was a startup. It was consulting. It wasn't necessarily it was services uh, business, but uh, to the recurring theme of, of jumping in and flying F-18s, I decided to join that startup, and I'm glad I did. Uh, I got to meet a lot of, uh, it ties into this conversation. Uh, I, I think I came to Lexington, Kentucky for a banker conference in hmm. 1995. was the first oh. time I was here. Uh, and we, uh, we essentially uh, reviewed the technology systems at community banks, billion in assets and below, small banks, call them uh, Jimmy Stewart, it's a wonderful life kind of bankers. It was great to see. We got to see small towns across America. Uh, did that for a year and a half and then saw the commercial web for the first time. So saw what everybody saw. That's yeah. sort of, I remember where I was. I was surfing on uh, some website from New Zealand <laughs> and I went back to my wife. We were living in a beach town in Florida. Uh, I had served in Jacksonville, Florida. And I said, hey, the world's about to change. We need to, we need to get out of here. And, uh, and that's what we did. That led me to go to Wharton and then from Wharton to Venture. So I'll stop there and yeah. let you uh, ask away. Yeah. I mean, I want to back up a little bit to the, to the jets, you know, flying jets. Uh, I, don't, I know growing up, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to play in the NBA or be a fighter pilot. Because uh, when I was growing up, my dad and my parents had gotten me for Christmas. I didn't know that. Big toy aircraft carrier. I was obsessed with F-14 Tomcats because uh, the, the wings. I just was fascinated. Yeah, F-14s are great. My I was fascinated with F-14s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something about the F-14 Tomcat. I don't know what it was, but just in general. Uh, what was it like just flying at that speed for, for eight years? What's that experience like? Uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. A hell of a lot of fun. But uh, I think – you know, you just mentioned the Tomcat and going back, growing up on Long Island, Northrop Grumman uh, did a lot of the test flights of the F-14 in the 1970s there. So we used to see him flying over the house. Uh, I didn't grow up like Chuck Yeager or looking at the sky saying, I want to fly. Uh, I think for me, when I went to the service academy, uh, the beauty of going to the Naval Academy is you have options to do a lot of things. You can mm -hmm. go to a submarine, be on a ship, uh, be a Navy SEAL, you can go fly. Uh, I happened to go to flight school right when Top Gun was uh, out in the theaters, yeah. which is probably the best time in history to, to go to flight school. And uh, so for me, it was a, it was the right uh, uh, branch of, of the Navy to for, for me for yes. high adrenaline, uh, high risk, high reward. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. Uh, it's certainly uh, not you know as glamorous as, as it's portrayed in the movies. Uh, but um, it uh, may be who I am, right? So it's uh, it's putting yourself out there and testing yourself uh, individually and also as a team to to accomplish missions. Yeah. Uh, and and it's um, you know lost a lot of good friends along the way. It's it's a, it's a dangerous profession. Uh, I think we do it very well. So uh, it doesn't happen very often, and you probably don't read about it in the papers much. But it's. Uh, uh, it, it's not without sacrifice. And, and so I think it taught me 
a lot about leadership, a lot about uh, uh, what it takes to succeed. And you, the question everybody wants to know, what's it like to, uh, it's great to fly super fast, to go faster than the speed of sound. Yeah. You, you really don't know, unless you have visual perception, you know, relative, like going by a cloud or going by another plane. So when we used to uh, practice in these dogfights and missions, uh, when you're going, you know, 500 miles an hour, 600 miles an hour, 800 miles an hour, um, uh, directly uh, against another jet. So the relative speed is, you know, six, you, you see, yeah. you notice that. Yeah. Uh, when, when you don't have the, the perception, you know, it's hard to tell how fast you're going uh, other than watching. Uh, the airspeed indicators. When you do break the speed of sound and come back, you do get some bump, you know, the, the sound wave hits you. Yeah. And of course, pulling G's and, and doing all that stuff is, is a blast. Yeah, I remember my dad used to take me up to Dayton, to the Dayton Air Show. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the first show. time I really saw him in, in person. Up in Wright Patterson. Yeah. You Wright Patterson, yeah. Yeah. And so that was, you know, always fascinated me. Yeah, and I had a lot of good friends that flew in the Blue Angels over the years. Blue Angels? I saw them yeah. up in Michigan a few times. Sure. Yeah, that was amazing. I'll tell you oh, a funny story. Is my, my sons were younger when I was in the Navy. So when I left the service and we went to San Francisco and I got into venture, they were, you know, in the, in the years, uh, you know, 8 to 12 years old, where they get excited about all that stuff. And the Blue Angels come to San Francisco, knew some of the Blue Angels, so we got to go to some of the shows and meet them. And... And we were fortunate to live in the Presidio, so they would fly over the house. And I would say, oh, Dad used to do that. And they would be, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, that was like year one. And then then 10 years into it, you know, I'd be like, oh, Dad used to do that. I'd be like, yeah, 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 we know. You told us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you were talking about, you know, it's obviously an inherently dangerous thing um, to, to fly the planes. Does that at all kind of tie into your mentality um, with, with investing, with venture? Um, cause it can be risky at times, you know, is there any kind of tolerance to risk that you've built up through that experience? Well, it's interesting. Uh, so Nate, I would say yes on, on a couple of fronts, maybe not the ones people are thinking, right? So anybody that's a good investor, the thing you're trying to avoid is risk. You're trying to mitigate risk. Yeah. So in that regard, I think there is an analogy one uh, the technology required to uh, to operate a plane and interact with it gave me some perspective on how uh, technology was changing. We had GPS uh, in the in the military, you know, years years before it sort of made its way out to commercial markets. Mm -hmm. So so being in the Department of Defense, you got to see things and maybe see the future a little before uh, even cellular technology and things like that. That sort of that. Um, but back to the the risk piece, uh, I didn't know about the venture industry, to be honest, I didn't know much about uh, a lot of industries when I got out of the military, I had to ask. And, and that's a big part of being successful in, in anything in life is just being willing to learn and, and, um, and be humble. And, and when I got out of the Navy or, or the year I was transitioning, I, I asked, a, I took a ton of people to breakfast and just started to, in all different industries, commercial real estate, uh, retail, on and on and on. Hey, what do you do and how do you do it? So when I went to uh, this startup, which was called Brintech, uh, that did technology consulting for banks, um, I think part of, uh, part of that process, uh, when I mentioned, hey, I saw the commercial web for the first time, like everybody, I started to think, 
all right, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to a startup? Am I going to start a company with somebody? This is the most exciting game I've ever seen. And as you would expect, some of the first websites that came up were venture capital websites, right? Because they were trying to market to startup companies. And that's how I learned about the business. To be honest, I didn't even know anything about it where uh, I, I saw a couple of uh, websites and started reading. Yeah, uh, you know, Fred Wilson was at Flatiron Ventures at the time and Tim Draper and, and John Hummer and Hummer Wimbledon where I ended up working. Uh, out of uh, at a business school, so uh, so when I looked at that business and what they did, there was a risk management perspective to uh, investing in several companies and trying to invest in the internet, so to speak, uh, which which appealed to me. And then I think a leadership piece of uh, a big part uh, of the business is it's a people business at the end of the day. Certainly at the earlier stages, it's it's uh, all about uh, connecting with entrepreneurs, connecting companies with uh, uh, people, talent, connecting them with the business partners, potential customers. It's it's all about uh, it's all about people. And I think my experience in the Navy, both uh, flying and with squadron and, and the leadership uh, and service pieces to that business translated well to venture. Uh, and to to bring it full circle, the original part of the question that you asked, uh, you know, was there a connection? I, in my mind, said that venture capital was like the F-18s of business. You just, you know, constantly having to learn and push yourself and mm -hmm. operate at, at sort of high uh, level. It's one of the coolest analogies I think I've heard around the technology <laughs> space. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, so you said you saw the internet and you're immediately knew it was going to change the world. And that motivated you to get an MBA at Warden. Uh, what about it said, okay, I need to get an MBA. Was it the fact that you needed the, the professional uh, side of the business world to understand you know, how to take advantage of the internet? What, what led you to, to get that MBA? It's a great question because I thought about it uh, in the sense that, hey, this, this is happening now, right? Yeah. So uh, was it going to take a couple of years and go to school? What was it going to what was it going to provide for me? I think for me, you know, some of the financial uh, acumen was was helpful. But to this day, I just got back from a, a golf trip at Hilton Head with 50 of my classmates uh, uh, from uh, Wharton. And we still get together on a regular basis, which is rare to have a group that large. So it all comes back to people and networking. I yeah. think I, I met uh, a ton of people. It was a little different when I went to school, the internet, it's, it's hard to imagine now. It, it, obviously people were talking about it, but it still wasn't everywhere. Uh, I even remember uh, leaving class early and taking the train up to New York to go to some of the early internet brew pub events they were having where people just started to talk about it. So it was, it was an exciting time and not everybody uh, was in, as enthusiastic as I was. So I think um, for me, I knew having uh, been, uh, you know, flying jets and, and doing that startup that I wanted to try and get into it and uh, get into venture. I, I had a plan of reaching out to venture firms and uh one, hey, if I could, if I could join a firm and learn the business, I knew I wanted to do that. But I was 
absolutely open to going to a startup and, and joining a startup too. One of those two was my, yeah. was my path. And, uh, and I, I won't, there was a few times when I was at school, uh, where I got very sort of antsy, like, Hey, maybe I, maybe I should just leave and go join a startup. You know, yeah. it was that, that sort of, but it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Uh, but I'm glad that I, uh, I'm glad that I went to Wharton and made great friends, uh, relationships to this day. And I think it's maybe a, a better venture investor over the time. And you, you see, especially now, uh, and, and understandably, given how fast things are changing, there's, there's new, uh, there's always new uh, venture firms and new generations of venture investors, and a lot of them with operating backgrounds. And I've been in firms where uh, there are folks that have uh, MBAs and, and folks that don't. And the truth is, and you know this better than anybody, being being in startups uh, yourselves and, and sort of living this, that once you leave school, uh, the best thing about the venture industry it's a, it's a meritocracy, right? So it doesn't matter uh, your background, it doesn't matter your skin color, your sexual preference, it doesn't matter whether you had MBA or not, or whether you went to Stanford or whether you went to um, you know you pick a school, yeah. you know state school anywhere. It's just how well you perform and do you get the job done and, and do you add value? So uh, that that's an, another piece that I, I think I vaguely understood at the time, but have come to appreciate even more over the years and, and keeps me excited about the business. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was great. Uh, what you mentioned about being in a VC uh, is like being in a you know, fighter pilot. You have to learn constantly, be very quick on your feet, know what's coming, um, so that's, like I said, that's that's a great analogy. So, what year did uh, you get that MBA? I finished in 1998. Okay, so that was before the bubble burst. That was before the bubble burst. So, yeah, yeah I, I I started at the firm uh, Hummer Winblad Venture Partners in '97. I think I first met the partners maybe '96. I went there for the summer and sort of worked uh, a bit my my second year of business school and started full-time. And so those years, 97 through, uh, uh, I tell a lot of people this, I characterize them as you know, the good years, some crazy years, 99, 2000, and then some character building years. Right. So we, uh, you know, I lived through all that, right? And it's great learning experience. And, and yeah. the, the venture business is, uh, is one that's a, you know, it's an apprenticeship. You definitely, uh, uh, everyone makes some mistakes and you learn from them and you have to, you know, learn from them and improve or you won't be in the business anymore. But, um, uh, yeah, it was, a uh, uh, it was a unique time. I bet. So eventually you ended up at Steamboat Ventures. Uh, so what year did you start there and how did you get connected to, to them? So Steamboat, which is the venture affiliate of the Walt Disney Company. Um, is it officially it, part of the company or is it just related? It's a, it's related. In, uh, when you say an affiliate, it's related. The investment capital came from the Walt Disney Company, the public company. Mm -hmm. And we invested that capital prudently in startups that uh, had some complementary tech aspect to traditional media business and not just Disney, all media. And so it was a pretty broad uh, opportunity set. If you think about mobile, video, analytics, uh, anything uh, that would uh, complement and be an extension of, of, of uh, traditional media business. Uh, 
and uh, and I started there, or uh, I think it was first introduced maybe 2005, started in 2006, uh, was recruited. Uh, I think a recruiter reached out, uh, got to meet uh, some of the key uh, partners there, founding partner, and I, I essentially ran the U.S. venture team for several years. Uh, it was an absolutely uh, great experience uh, getting to know the Walt Disney Company. So it was the best of all worlds. When I, I think when I first was uh, considering it or, or a recruiter called me, had a little bit of an egotistical attitude being in Silicon Valley that, hey, it was corporate venture and it was down in Los Angeles. And now uh, love it. Uh, down there in the you know San Marino Pasadena region where we live and uh, and and I think the experience at Disney made me a better venture investor got to understand how that company worked uh, our role was really working with the digital teams across all the business units so think ESPN Pixar uh, Marvel uh, all the different uh, media businesses ABC and then you think about uh, how big and and impactful that company is so with yeah. the parks almost every type of technology you could imagine from crm to uh analytics to uh, streaming uh streaming video all that stuff and uh, bob Iger, who started as ceo in 2005 was incredibly uh impactful i think to not not only the companies he's done a phenomenal job as ceo of the company but i think by embracing technology and and really being uh outward outwardly focused on uh learning uh it uh, it helps steamboat ventures uh, incredibly with respect to uh, our our perceived value in the market yeah got it yeah and, and you know i grew up going to disney world and the parks almost every year and i always noticed one of my favorite parts is just knowing that there would be something new every time I went. Whether it was a new ride, some kind of new technology. Um, you know, they had, I feel like they had, uh, you know, VR and things of that nature, really early robotics. Um, and I, you know, being part of Steamboat Ventures, I'm sure you saw a lot of that before it, you know, really came to life. And um, they, they started using it on a, on a large scale. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Walt Disney is, you know, one of the pioneers, one of the great entrepreneurs in, in history certainly in, the, in American history. And, and so a lot of that uh, ethos, uh, I think, you know, was, was revived in many respects by Bob. And, uh, and you saw, you know, over a 10 year period that, um, uh, that I was involved, or eight to 10 years, I should say, the, uh, the number of companies that we got to meet and interact with that, I mean, one of the one of our jobs was to, you know, just do great venture capital, right? So invest in companies and generate a return. Uh, another part of it was just to, like you do in venture business, you meet tons of companies. We meet thousand companies a year and maybe invest in you know one to two a quarter. And I think that's that's the that's the ratio at all great firms. So, uh, but there's a lot of learning when you meet all those companies and you see things ahead of time and. And Disney, to your point, I think has been an early adopter. Uh, anything that that increases the you know customer uh, fan experience, uh, so so it was the best of all worlds. Yeah, just like uh, last time, you know, perfect example. Last time I went, uh, they had new wearable technology. 
you know, the new new, new bands. You unlock your mm-hmm. hotel room with it. You buy everything. The they didn't have that the year before I went. So it's Those like have every year. They transformed just... the park experience. Like it's, it's about crazy. phenomenal. Yeah. 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 I, I freaking love Disney. I, I've been a fanatic of the Disney <laughs> parks since I was a kid. I think because of my entrepreneurship mindset, I, I thought about or I learned the story of Walt Disney, who, you know, you can talk about the, the movies, the media where he started. And I mean, he built an empire with that. But what really interested me was the parks because he literally built a world. Uh, and he he built something that had never been done before, and he put all this technology in it in ways that had never been done before, all the way back to the audio animatronics. Um, it was the first of its kind in robotics that could could move and you know seemed like they talked and everything. And no question, no question. I think if you read the story, Disneyland itself was a bit of a venture capital project because it was so uh, it was so new and so out there that. I believe Walt had to fund it himself. I don't think the company company thought, "Hey, this is uh, this is a little too far out there." Okay. So you you could consider that maybe the the beginning of the seed of of uh, what became Steamboat Ventures. Uh, that's probably not the best analogy. Uh, I'm sure Walt's family wouldn't necessarily agree with that. <laughs> but the idea was he he figured out a way. To, okay, I'll get it done on my own. I'll uh, mm-hmm. I'll put my own money and and keep it separate and if it works great of course it worked fabulously well and then they folded it back into the company but it was a special project to begin with yeah so it's a great lesson for a lot of companies we're, we're kind of skirting around it here was one of the the goals of steamboat ventures you know to invest in these companies and then if they're successful eventually the walt disney company would acquire them or, or what was the strategy around that it was actually the opposite so the uh, the goal was not necessarily to acquire them. Uh, I think there was a sense that there's a lot of emerging technologies that could be beneficial to the company or logical complements to the company. Uh, an uh, example one being content delivery networks, right? So Disney's huge content provider, ESPN, is uh, is a major powerhouse. We all know. So if you look at all the brands across the company, there was a sense that. Uh, we needed a dedicated team. The company needed a dedicated team that uh, was focused on venture. Uh, if we were going to be customers, then we might as well benefit from some of the uh, equity ownership. Mm-hmm. But the thought process was, since it was tech and the core competency was tech, that uh, uh, those companies would most likely either go public or be acquired by the likes of Google or Verizon or Microsoft. Makes sense. Got it. Yeah. Um, and if you, if you look at the corporate uh, venture business, so John Ball, who was in the corporate strategy group at Disney, uh, started, uh, Steamboat was started obviously before I got there. Uh, I think it was started back in 2000. So very early on and and became a model for a lot of corporate venture funds. So uh, if you look at Google, if you look at SAP, if you look at uh, corporate venture now, it's just exploded and become very strategic. You know, we're at a point in history where incredible uh, uh, innovation, incredible progress, incredible disruption going on. And I would say when I first got in the business 20 plus years ago, corporate venture, uh, corporate uh, when I say, you know, let's call Fortune 1000 companies would 
would would maybe set up a, a an investment group off the balance sheet, but weren't necessarily one hundred percent behind it in the sense that it was very strategic to the future of the business. It was kind of a nice thing to do, especially when the internet first came out. Mm-hmm. When the the dot com happened and there was uh, you know a lot of startup failures, I think a lot of corporations pulled back from the business right as Disney and Steamboat were heading you know full on into. Uh, into that strategy. And now, almost 20 years later, uh, almost every Fortune 500 company, if they don't have a venture firm, they're thinking about venture or how we get more involved with startups and how uh, growth and talent and uh, future opportunity uh, is going to come from that uh, area of the of the market. Yeah. I'm sure you came across a lot of really, really cool companies while you were there. What are some of the first ones that pop into your mind when you look back on that time? I knew you were going to ask this question. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, not to not to show uh, favoritism, of, of course. And, and this is actually true. This, this is not lip service that every company you invest in, you want to succeed. Yeah. And so you don't just play favorites like anybody. Uh, there were companies that were a little more well-known. Uh, a little more successful. I talked about uh, CDNs earlier. One uh, company, Edgecast, we invested in. Uh, Alex Kazarani is probably one of the best uh, entrepreneurs and, and founder CEOs I've, I've worked with. Uh, they were very successful in LA, were acquired by Verizon. GoPro is probably the most prominent that, that you all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick Whitman, and it was a privilege to, to be part of that company uh, through the IPO. Playdom, which is a social gaming company. Uh, along with Zynga, that was one company that Disney did acquire. Uh, but but that made to to my uh, point earlier was the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. So there there's several uh, I would I would put up there as uh, as as exciting and yeah. uh, and you know across my career uh, and everybody's career, you know it's 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 fun to watch now. Uh, given how uh, successful and pervasive consumer venture has been. And that was one piece at Steamboat Ventures. We were obviously focused on a lot of consumer tech because it was the Walt Disney Company. It was all about consumers. Um, There's a lot of some stuff behind the scenes, like content delivery networks and video streaming services that weren't necessarily, they, they um, help the consumer in the end, but they weren't well known by the consumer. Yeah. The GoPros, the flip video cameras, which is pure digital, those are a little more well known. Uh, today with Uber, Airbnb, uh, you name it, uh, uh, success of Netflix, just look at success of a startup 20 years ago is reshaping the, the media landscape. It's, uh, it, I'll, I'll do a quick, uh, funny, you know, side note just about how aware everybody is about the venture business or startups for a long time. Uh, and my mom will probably uh, be disappointed. I'm talking about her on, on this podcast, but she would, uh, she would say, what do you do again? After I uh, left business school and, and started Hummer when I started the venture business, it's like, everybody's asking me what you do and I call it like white collar gambling or something. And, just, <laughs> and, uh, and then fears, I go, yeah, yeah, mom. It's it's venture capital. I invest in startups. Startups create jobs, create the future. All these companies that you 
you know, that, that everybody uh, works with now. They were startups at one point. And I'm, I'm being a little, you know, exaggerating a little, but I, I think she understood. But the funny thing was uh, a few years back, she called me and said, I'm watching this new show. I absolutely love it. It's called Shark Tank. Have you ever seen it? And I'm like, well, that's, I, I don't do it in that kind of dramatic fashion, but that's in some respects what venture investors do. So it was, it was a funny conversation <laughs> I said after all those years. Yeah. White collar gambling. That's hilarious. I've never heard that before. That's really funny. <laughs> Actually, we should probably edit that out of the podcast. <laughs> All right, we'll think about it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let's let's keep going here. So you, you continued in in venture capital, uh, and then you eventually uh, created uh, Airwing Airwing Ventures. Um, so why don't you tell us a bit about that? Uh, and your goal and what it means to be a partner and what uh, what being a partner uh, really means. Yeah, so so maybe I should just spend a little time talking about, uh, you know, the connection to Lexington and how that yeah. happened. Okay. Um, I uh, helped start a fund in L.A. called Power Plant Ventures that's focused on uh, uh, better for you food and eating and, and sort of a passion category I'm, I'm very proud of and excited and nice. great group of partners there. And, uh, and I think if you look at the last five years, it's helped a few firms, you know, think through their venture strategies. We had, or have been in California for 20 plus years. And I'd mentioned earlier, I'm from New York, my wife's from Miami. We uh, spent several years in Florida. So we lived all over the country and about five or six years ago, my wife uh, loves horses. We have a few horses flew to the Kentucky Derby on her own, had a great time, fell in love with the area and said, hey, we should come visit. And so we started visiting more often, uh, did uh, really enjoy it. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm doing a cliff note version of this. We decided to spend more time, uh, bought a house. And, uh, and along the way, I started to almost going back to when I first got out of the Navy and worked with small banks across the country, watching what was happening in the country, uh, realizing that there were opportunities for venture. And when I first got to Hummer Wimblad, uh, I, during probably the height of the dot-com, we did a business plan competition that was sort of modeled after March Madness. You would appreciate that, the Wildcat fans here and, in fact, I think I might have called it the March Madness contest at the time and got a cease and desist from the NCAA. We changed <laughs> I'll be real February. quick. We changed it to February Madness, but it was uh, sixty-four schools, and and we did uh, you know a, a final or Sweet Sixteen, and one of us, one of the partners. So we flew to all the. I think somebody flew to MIT. There was one at Berkeley. I forget I forget where the fourth one was, but one of them was at Louisville. I think was in Kentucky. So, so it was a fun event and we ended up funding a company out of it. But I mentioned that because there's this history over 20 years of really being passionate, especially being a veteran, uh, have strong networks across the country and starting to see the emergence of, of different areas across the country. So when we started visiting this area and call it, you know, 100, 200 mile radius around here, spent some time up in Cincinnati and Louisville here, uh, Fuji, you know, which, which you all know well, was one of the first companies that sort of stood out. And I talked earlier in the podcast, I think a light bulb going on for me was the fact that you 
had Disney as one of the largest customers here. And a majority of the clients were in Los Angeles. So I started to think more about strategies that would uh, address some of the underserved markets in the country and tie them back to key innovation hubs. So LA, New York, Bay Area, San Francisco. When I made the decision to go to Steamboat, Los Angeles at the time, 2004, 2005, still hadn't you know, lived up to expectations. I think there were a lot of people saying that, uh, you know, th that very thing that, hey, they were waiting for, you know, LA to come into its own. And over the last 10 years, and so, some of the metrics for that are some big exits, right? So, so having uh, billion dollar exits, having things like uh, Dollar Shave Club, having things like Ring, uh, Shopzilla, there's, there's a few things that happened over the last 10 years that really started to drive uh, capital and entrepreneurship. And now you have a whole host of folks coming down from the Bay Area to live in LA, so, so back to Airwing the, uh, and, and some of the investments. So uh, obviously invested in Fuji and, and made some investments where I see a lot of uh, promise, no different than any other venture firm I've been in. And some of the key relationships uh, and connections back to uh, LA, back to New York, back to San Francisco can help differentiate. And, and I think, you know, one of the questions you may bring up or ask is, you know, the, what, what is the role? What's your role as a partner? What's your role as a venture investor? Like what the, the value beyond the capital is there's a lot of firms with capital. So it's a service provider business. You're trying to uh, provide a service for an entrepreneur, trying to help them succeed, trying to help a company succeed. So for me, I always put myself in, in the entrepreneur and the co my co-investor shoes. Like how can I best help? And thinking through... I make a sports analogy back to basketball uh, uh, that you're coach slash manager of a team, right? So you, the company or the players, right? You're, you're not necessarily day to day in that, but how can you help your team win? So some of it's people, talent, uh, introduce either uh, folks that are going to work at a company like Fuji or could help in an advisory capacity, uh, could help uh, as potential new customers, as potential new business partners. So anything to give your team, your company uh, advantages that they might not have and, and succeed is, is really the job of a venture investor. And, and I think the best venture investors take that perspective of uh, a coach manager and try and be like a, a Steve Kerr yeah. or, uh, you know, Coach Cal or anybody that's, you know, how I get the best out of my team and, and what can I do to help them improve? And you also bring a set of experiences, companies you've invested in, ones that have worked, ones that maybe didn't work as well as, as everyone would have liked to the table and try and, uh, and make that founder, entrepreneur, overall um, company and team uh, avoid some of those mistakes if you can. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of tying back to you know, when you're in the Navy, you talked about the teamwork that you learned, uh, you know, flying and, and being there with your uh, you know, fellow uh, Navy mates. And it makes sense. You're building a big team around a company to help them succeed. Yeah, and I don't think that, you know, I, I feel very fortunate. I don't think there's a more uh, noble effort when you really think most of the jobs in the country 
this gets to you know some of the things that that are sort of near and dear to everyone's heart now is um, the uh, the number of jobs that are created by small businesses is, is uh, you know majority of the jobs right eighty yeah. percent ninety percent maybe even and in the venture space just growth itself when I think about high growth employment high growth careers high growth companies uh, that uh, ensuring that the companies that we invest in, high growth companies succeed, uh, they help the Fortune 1000 that are looking for uh, growth, you know, figure out, hey, how do I, how do I connect with some of these startups and, and, uh, and succeed myself? So part of your job as a venture investor is you think about universities, corporations, governments, uh, existing ecosystems, even a Lexington region, you know, how, how can they all help create a high growth community, I'm calling it uh, uh, community venturing at scale, right? So how do you, how do you really add some, and, and Brad Phelps and remarkable work and folks at Endeavor. And if I think about Y Combinator and, and Techstars, there's just a whole bunch of efforts that have made this front and center lexicon, but it's a, uh, it's a never ending effort, right? So yeah. if, uh, if we can through skills and training, get more, uh, just more people in general from any type of school into high growth careers, you know, that to me, that um, is life changing, life changing for you as a person, life changing for a community. If you have companies that are successful uh, and create wealth, that wealth is, is sort of shared with the community in, in yeah. many different ways. So um, I, uh, I'm very, uh, I feel very privileged and I think constantly I'm trying to improve myself as a venture investor to, uh, to add value to that process. Yeah. Got it. And, and so there's this whole side of, you know, entrepreneurship and especially uh, in the tech space where, you know, everything moves so quickly, there's obviously going to be a lot of failures. Um, the majority of companies, you know, do fail. Um, so how do you stay optimistic and uh, what are some, what are some things that you look for in a company that, uh, you know, lead to optimism and lead you to say, okay, this is going to be one of the ones that succeeds. Uh, maybe just three things, you know what? Sure. What are your thoughts around that? That's a great, great point, Evan. And I mean, when you think about the business, you, you work hard, you look at those a thousand companies, you're investing in one to two per quarter. So let's say six to eight companies a year. And everyone you invest in at the time you think is going to be successful. And, and to your point, uh, they, they aren't all successful. So look, I pride myself on, on sort of pitching in one's, that uh, maybe don't live up to expectations, right? So sometimes uh, things happen, right? There's, uh, it, we've never had a time in history where you have companies as, as savvy and as successful as the likes of Amazon and Facebook and Google, Apple. So I think you're looking for you know, three big things that you probably heard uh, from, from other uh, folks over the years, but you're looking for uh, I call it tenacious teams, tenacious, talented teams, but tenacity and, and persistence, I think is incredibly important. I've been in several companies and, and we all know that almost every best laid plan of a, a startup changes and shifts many times as you learn and realize that, hey, maybe this isn't working. So I think uh, the ability of a, of a team to sort of be flexible, tenacious and, uh, and creative um, is, is very important. Of course, uh, you need a large enough market to, to have uh, high growth uh, translate to uh, significant revenue and, uh, and customers and value. Uh, 
So that's a piece you always, you know, pay attention to. And, and then I think the last one that is sometimes trickier is differentiation. So you look for a unique service and can that company keep its uh, either proprietary differentiation, can they constantly innovate and stay unique? Uh, because if, uh, if you can't, it gets tougher, you know, uh, competition tends to, uh, people tend to gravitate to things that are working. And if, if you can't differentiate, it could, uh, make it more challenging down the road. So, uh, even, so if you think about 10 investments in a portfolio, you typically need one to two to do really well. Uh, there are others that, uh, you know, and I, I think I've, uh, in all the firms I've been at, we, We've been very proud of some companies that maybe were uh, didn't live up to the expectations even the founders had at the moment, but they succeeded under you know trying circumstances, whatever that um, um, whatever that um, whatever resulted in the trying circumstances, they sort of overcame that and, and still had a good uh, outcome. You know, maybe not a venture outcome, or maybe not something they thought, but in all those cases. Uh, the, the word failure uh, is, is probably not used as much. And that was one of the things that attracted me to the business in the first place, right? You think about stories uh, like the whole group and team uh, uh, that, uh, you know, the founder of eBay that was at Go, right? So there was a whole bunch of folks at uh, uh, one of the early uh, uh, tech companies that didn't succeed and yet they all learned, right? So you're all, you're constantly learning yeah. and some of the most, uh, successful entrepreneurs have had two or three failures prior. So I think that gets back to tenacity or being willing to fail. Same thing, you know, flying or, you know, just kind of putting yourself out there. Some of the man in the arena, Teddy Roosevelt quote, and, uh, and people that constantly learn and say, okay, that one didn't work. How do I tweak it this time? Uh, and I, I encourage a lot of entrepreneurs, in fact, in, in funded a couple of companies where, Maybe the business wasn't in the right place or was kind of pointed in a, in a direction that uh, maybe wasn't as, as exciting, uh, but uh, told the entrepreneur, hey, keep in touch, you know, and, and maybe a couple of suggestions here. Not that they necessarily followed my suggestions, but a uh, surprising number that learned and came back six months later and said, hey, uh, yeah, it wasn't working, but we did this and now this is really working over here. And, and in fact, that's that's part of the uh, founding story at the Fuji, right? Yep. Uh, the founders yep. were working on an app that uh, really wasn't working, right? Yep. And said, hey, they tried this. And then, uh, you know, uh, I think Verizon called. So all that stuff, yep. it's like pattern recognition in the venture business to say, huh, I've, I've uh, either seen this movie or a version of this movie before, and I, and I like the the early you know signals about how this company's starting to grow yeah makes sense big pivot that's yeah. what i always whenever i tell the story of fuji whenever i pitch fuji i always make sure to include that piece because I, I remember when i joined the team that's we were doing that b2c uh, app where you just use an emoji to order food um, that's what attracted me is i understood the value of simple digital digital interactions leading to a physical experience um, so that's what attracted me to fuji and then i always like telling the story of how we you know, pivoted from that to what we do now. I think that's an important part of our DNA, like you just mentioned. Um, so it's important sure. for all entrepreneurs to understand uh, and, and look at the market and understand where it's heading. Uh, and we didn't even consider 
our current business model, which is uh, largely advertising with gigantic uh, brands like Disney uh, and Warner Brothers and, and Verizon. Um, and so we knew to pivot. Um, that's an important part of, I'm sure, uh, your career, knowing uh, when a pivot needs to take place in every entrepreneur's career. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into. Uh, we always try to tie, you know, this podcast back into Lexington and this region, because um, that's why we started this podcast was to uh, raise awareness around entrepreneurship and technology, you know, in this part of the United States. Uh, every time I, I tell clients we're from Lexington, they're either not familiar uh, or they're just super surprised. Um, and I like that. I like the fact that uh, you know we're kind of you know, on the come up. Uh, the fact that there's a lot of growth here. Uh, so that's what this podcast is for, to highlight a lot of that growth. Um, so let's talk about Lexington and, you know, Cincinnati in this region. So what are you seeing here? Um, obviously, you talked about earlier where you're bringing in some funds. Uh, you know, you're starting out Airwing Ventures. But what are you seeing here that, um, you know, is making you optimistic about uh, Lexington and this area? So uh, great question. And I, I see a lot of things, right? So this is example one, doing a podcast, people uh, – starting companies and gathering for meetups and in general there's a growing enthusiasm right so i think back to you know watching the success uh, of of consumer apps and if you look at the last 10 years really i think the introduction of the iphone uh, facebook instagram you really have a whole generation of, of folks that are growing up with these technologies right so it's almost front and center awareness, this is how the world's going to work. And that awareness has, has pervaded, I think, every, every city in America, every city in the world. Yeah. So it's incredibly exciting time. So I see everybody being connected to, to the rest of the world and saying, back to the sports analogy, hey, <coughs> we're going to do something great in our town. And, and I saw that in Lexington. I saw it when I, I met the Awesome Inc. folks, when I met uh, Greg and Eric and, and you at, at Fuji. Uh, and, and as you start to dig around, you see uh, what, what's happened in Cincinnati with Centrifuge. You see Endeavor picking Louisville as, as one of their cities. So uh, when I draw, you know, even a, a 300 mile circle around this area and you include Nashville and you include even Nate, you know, up in Chicago, there's just an incredible amount of activity. And I think one of the uh, opportunities and challenges uh, of, of some of the areas is, is what I talked about earlier, right? There's you, what, what I saw in LA uh, 2005 to 2015 is starting to happen everywhere, right? So you need a couple of companies to get funded by, uh, you know, called well-known venture firms or have, have some breakout success. And when that happens, my theory is you have a, you know, a billion dollar exit, uh, there's, there's probably 10 to 15 entrepreneurs that come out from that mm -hmm. and say, hey, I want to try that on my own, right? Yeah. So, so you have this exponential uh, effect and, and I've, I've seen it happen, you know, firsthand in LA and LA learned a lot from, LA and New York both learned a lot from the Bay Area and they become these powerhouses. They're not, they're, it, it's, it's fun and interesting because they're not, trying to be Silicon Valley. They've got their own unique attributes and, and differentiation. And, and then I see that happening in the rest of the country. So I would make the case that there is going to be, you know, one 
to to $2 billion companies started in call it 40 metro regions or or 20 states that wouldn't typically be uh, states you'd think are um, tech hotbeds. So this is going to happen everywhere. And I see it here in Lexington. The the list of folks that have been in this podcast, folks like Shane and Ian and and Warren, uh, it's exciting. And so uh, I look at this, um, um, tying it back to being in the Navy and uh, and loving this country, how can we uh, how can we foster innovation and success? And when I think about Airwing, part of the reason for that name was this idea of community venturing at scale. Could we have a shamelessly uh, follow on on the blockchain analogies? But could you have sort of a decentralized group of of, of uh, folks following a playbook in in all these different areas and there's an incredible amount of talent that leaves a city like a Lexington or like a Nashville, like a Cincinnati. Some of it is youth saying, Hey, I want to go work at Facebook. I want to go work at Google. I want to, uh, I want to get that experience outside. I want to work in Manhattan. I want to go work in LA. And after a while, uh, saying, all right, I did that. I got that out of my system. It was fun. I learned a lot. Now I want to take what I've learned and, and sort of bring it back to my hometown. So there's that dynamic going on, a uh, whole bunch of things that leave me very encouraged about uh, success opportunities here, and also everybody managing expectations, uh, given uh, given geographies and, and metro regions. There's um, there's opportunity for everybody, and I think. Uh, there's the biggest opportunity in, in sort of connecting these regions back to areas that um, have uh, top tier venture funds, top tier, uh, you know, clients or customers like the Walt Disney Company and raising the profile of these startups, maybe uh, uh, beyond where they, they would have been even five, 10 years ago. Uh, and okay. yeah. And part of you know being a VC fund is understanding where there's demand for um, capital and and being um, you know the supply side of that. Um, what are you seeing here in this region? Is there uh, you know a lot of demand and is VC capital keeping up with that? Uh, I think so. It, it, I mean, it's sort of a, a work in process. I do think it's a semi-efficient market that. Um, there's certainly uh, ample venture capital. If you look at the stats, there's there's never been you know sort of larger set of funds raised. Uh, I do think there's some inefficiencies in that you know part of the uh, conversation we just had a couple of minutes ago. There are you know if there's firms like Airwing and others that are helping to raise the profile of companies that you know may not may not otherwise get the attention of top customers or top tier venture investors. That's going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, but but there's been some large funds raised in the region, and uh, I don't think eventually. So let me put it this way: I do think there's a lot of companies doing great things, and venture, whether in Silicon Valley or LA or anywhere, is not necessarily right for every company. Right? So venture investors have high return expectations, high growth expectations. Um, in a perfect world, a company is going to go from uh, 1 million and, and grow, you know, 300% a year uh, for, for a couple of years, go from one to three to nine and then double for the next few years. So that's, that's a high bar of, of growth. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um, there's a lot of companies doing great things 
and are growing, but maybe it's not venture growth. So I think venture, the best firms are pretty disciplined about that and, and um, it is somewhat efficient. The thing I'm most excited about is I think a lot of, uh, given the pervasiveness of technology, that you, you're seeing a lot of high growth companies start in areas that they wouldn't have previously. And I think you see more of that. Yeah. And so once you have a billion dollar exit back to that same, uh, it, it's going to, if, if you look at the landscape of the United States in 20 years, uh, you're going to see powerhouse metro regions across the country. And the difference between, again, Silicon Valley is always going to have, you know, its unique attributes and, and not saying that any, anything's going to eclipse that. I doubt it because they, they'll change and, and iterate and get better. And it's, it's got a heritage that's unlike any other. And I, and I lived there and I lived it for a while and I love it. But you're going to see the rest of the country sort of rise to, to the occasion. And it, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun for everyone involved. Yeah. So, so going forward, uh, what does Lexington need to do to make sure to continue to move in that direction? going forward and iterating on what we do well, what are some things that you think Lexington uh, needs to do and improve on? Well, I think, uh, I think certainly celebrating or, or uh, doing everything uh, the city can to, uh, to help entrepreneurs and startups is, uh, you know, front and center. So that includes, uh, you know, government efforts. And I think there've been some great state efforts with respect to, uh, investment credits and so forth. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, universities and uh, some of the work Ian's doing to connect universities to, to startup ecosystem, um, to get local, you know, there's, there's great work being done by Bluegrass Angels and others here. So, um, it's that combination of enthusiasm, capital. I do think, you know, one of the things that can improve is, is probably back to my experience at Steamboat, right? So you have Walt Disney Company, one of the, you know, top 50 most admired companies, probably the top admired brand in, in the world, uh, embrace venture wholeheartedly. So I think uh, some of the corporations that have a presence here in Kentucky or connections here in Kentucky can um, probably get a little more engaged in, in uh, the startup community doesn't necessarily mean they have to start a venture fund, but they certainly should want uh, there to be more activity and, yeah. and more successes. And, and um, so, yeah, I think those are the three main areas, but a lot of it is, is just grinding away, right? So having uh, a couple of companies be successful and, and that could be anything from a, you know, $25 million acquisition to $50 million acquisition to, you know, a super successful billion dollar acquisition, they all matter. And when you have a company growing and doing cool things that uh, incorporate the technologies that um, everybody knows and loves, right? So that's mobile, that's uh, some of the um, consumer apps that, that we, we take for granted and just sort of live, live with now. Um, I love to see people say, well, I want to do that. Right? And I want to figure that out. And I want to, and so it's happening. It's just, if you look at it week to week, it looks like nothing's happening, yeah. but, but I see it and yeah. I see it, you know, on a, on a relative basis and, uh, and I wouldn't be spending time here or in this region or in other, uh, 
underserved regions around the country if I didn't think it was going to be worthwhile.